So this podcast, Talking Health Tech, we've released close to 250 episodes now, and quite often the focus is on Australian healthcare, the innovations, the technologies, challenges, and everything we face in this big brown land. We do certainly speak to guests from outside this country, of course, and talk about global expansion and everything, but no doubt a big focus is here in Australia. There are, however, some really good podcasts out there that you should be subscribing to that cover health tech and digital health in other parts of the world and through other people's perspectives. One of those shows, which I've been listening to probably as long as I've been doing this podcast, is the Faces of Digital Health podcast with Tiazar Zik. And in this episode, you'll hear a conversation with Tiazar, someone I get along with and highly respect and love chatting to. So hopefully you enjoy this one as well. Now, I think when we recorded this episode, I'm not even sure we really worked out whether we were recording an episode of the Talking Health Tech podcast or an episode of the Faces of Digital Health podcast. So I think we're both just releasing this conversation in our own podcast at the same time. So if you enjoy this one, make sure you subscribe to Faces of Digital Health and follow Tiazza on LinkedIn afterwards and let her know what you thought of this episode. So after the music, you'll hear me chatting with Charles Zik, based in Slovenia and host of the Faces of Digital Health podcast. In this episode, we talk about my health record here in Australia, the exciting potential and the half truths and realities and everything in between. We talk about the state of healthcare digitization across the world, the importance of cybersecurity, the increasing prevalence of open standards and digital health strategies across the globe, and lots more too. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. Okay, Pete, welcome. It's very nice to talk again to someone from Australia. I usually have at least one guest from Australia per year. And it's always super interesting to to hear their perspective on my health record, uh, which for those that might not be familiar with, is the um, basically the system for storing electronic healthcare record across Australia. Currently, Australia, um, 23.3 million people in Australia have my health record. And just to clarify, Australia has close to 26 million people. So there's the, the big majority of people has their own my health record on the platform. And there's been a lot of controversy happening around my health record in the past. First, it was an opt-in system, then clearly the, the statistics didn't go up in the in terms of how many people actually applied for that, so it's turned into an opt-out system. And then the critique that I actually got last year was that because not all health providers are adjusted or have the connectivity to be able to connect to the record, in the end the records are incomplete and the system becomes unjust because it only serves a certain pop- population of people and not the other part of people. So how how do you see, you know, my health record? What has been progress in the last two years, according to your observations? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Charles, for uh, having me on the show. It's great to be able to chat for the podcast and talk about health tech across Australia and, and elsewhere too. My health record is an interesting one because 
like you said, you, you, there was a really good explanation and thank you for providing that because it's something that actually, that existed for quite a while and, and there wasn't a great deal of interest from the public in having a, a central health record for every Australian and, and the typical kind of justification or use case, this is, you know, 10 years ago, I think was, well, Hey, if you're in an ambulance and you're unconscious, then the paramedic could look at your My Health record and then see what medications you were allergic to. And then that way they could administer And people are like, okay, that sounds interesting. But then obviously that relies on a lot of information to be loaded up into the record that relies on the person actually setting it up. And that whole process was a really difficult one from an end user perspective. And it just, once you are actually in the My Health record, this was the ongoing joke that we had within the, the industry was well, what do you actually do with it? Like, and I see one blood test perhaps that, that a provider had loaded up six months ago and it's the PDF, but it takes like 15 clicks to kind of get into it. It's like, great. And now I've got the PDF. It's like, it's not actually data that's in a field that you could do anything with. And it's like, okay, that's great. But then it kind of just went under the radar and I was like, this is a real kind of missed opportunity. A lot of investment went into my health record. But then at that point where you said that there was, you know, the, the went from opt in to opt out. So it was, you know, everyone was just given a my health record that was also okay for a while but then i think there was a lot of media that that then kind of brought up this issue of well what's the government going to do with your health information and you should have a have a right to you know opt out and so that that created this big political kind of football that was being thrown around i think that that derailed a lot of the the conversation i think but also brought up some interesting points around data security and privacy which are all relevant too so that became an issue and quite a few people opted out of of having a my health record although that whole sentiment kind of died down a little bit as the dust settled. Then I think the next time that my health record had a real big focus again was obviously around COVID and as vaccines were administered and everyone needed to be able to show proof of vaccine to be able to go out and do things again. The My Health record was used as the, the place of reference for your vaccine certificate. So that's where you see there's been this huge uptick in terms of people using the My Health record because there's actually a reason to use it now. It's like, you know, your that's where your vaccine certificate is and it's a bit more than clicking on a PDF. You don't open up a little PDF and zoom up to it and all of this. It's actually a nice, it's, a, it's an okay user experience where it gives you a little green tick at the top and you open your app and that's where it is. So I think that's kind of demonstrated that if there's a if there's a reason to use it, then, and it's a decent enough experience, then the thing's going to get used. But I think the challenge will be for us now actually investing in more use cases that more of the public would actually see benefit and interest in. I don't think every Australian's interested in seeing their routine blood tests or their routine x-rays or, or anything like that. But I think that if there was a way to be able to utilize that as a platform to have, you know, your core bits of information, then potentially there's a, some, some good use cases. There's a whole other story about incentivizing providers to actually load information up to it, but I'm going to pause there for a second. <laughs> oh, but that just sounded like it's going to become interesting. Just a quick comment there. I think that we see in a lot of other countries, to me, it's very interesting to listen to presentations about the state of healthcare digitalization across the world, because when you hear that a country, especially in Europe, you know, where you have smaller countries and it's easier to, to have some sort of a national backbone system. And when somebody says that EHRs or personal health care records have been in place for, for years, and some countries really do have a long history of that, um, that information says very little. When you start digging 
deeper, you realize that it's exactly the situation as you described. So patients mm. get their PDF, just PDFs from, from their medical visits there. So very unpractical to, to search information from. And, and again, same challenges, just providers don't put the information on the backbone. Yeah. And, and I think there are some incentives in a way for clinicians to load up information into my health record, but it's, and, and, you know, practice management systems here in Australia, which are like the, the EMRs for the, for the GP clinics, they have done their best with the infrastructure they've got to be able to allow, you know, a, a one click upload and all of this, but there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that, it, that it falls back onto the GP to do. And if the GP doesn't get paid appropriately for it, they're not going to do it. And also if it's reliant on that extra step, so someone, another bit in the workflow that a clinician needs to load something up, of course, from a patient side, you're not going to get a full picture of your health unless you're going to the one clinician all the time who's really diligent and, and proactive about loading stuff up into your My Health record, you're, you're only going to get little snippets from it. So, so there are many technology providers around Australia who are building adjuncts to the My Health record, or even just something totally different and siloed, which is is a bit of a, a bit of a shame. When, like you say, we've got the potential to be able to, like the vision sounds like at one point was to have this backbone and infrastructure to be able to then build on top of. But there is there is very rarely any building on top of the My Health record because it's just not seen as a, a good infrastructure to, to build on top of yet. So, yeah. It's, um, yeah. I, I, one word that you said is really important, and that's yet. So you think yes. it's going to just develop over time? Because we do have to be fair that on top of the fact that things happen super slowly in healthcare, these things take time for adoption to come in, for improvements to come in, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm optimistic, Yes. Definitely. And I think we have to be. And I think all together, we like it's it's a role that I have seen the the Australian Digital Health Agency, which is, you know, our, our agency responsible for, I guess, everything to do with technology and digital in healthcare and policy and stuff around that uh, and, and, and responsible for the My Health Record. There has been a lot of consultation recently with industry and stakeholders. So not just vendors, but clinicians and patients as well about what they want, not only what they want in terms of the information out of my health record specifically, but also how healthcare should be delivered. So with telehealth now being covered under the MBS, the Medicare benefit scheme here in Australia. So a lot of it is covered under Medicare. Although when you do, it's like everything, it's like when you dig into it, just like, that's a great kind of leading frontline, but then you dig into it just like one layer. It's like, if you've seen the patient in the past 12 months and if you've done this and blah, 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 blah. So there's, there's always the caveats around it, which don't make it kind of true telehealth is all available. So I think we're, we're a step closer and much like with the My Health Record, we've demonstrated that it, it was useful for the, the COVID vaccine proof of vaccination. So kind of like the what next. And we did also see other states kind of build their own apps. So here in Australia, we've got different states around the country and I'm based in New South Wales. So we have our own New South Wales app that we use to, you know, do your check-ins and do all the other bits and pieces. But then also it's pulling from my health record to show your vaccine certificate too. So yeah, there's little pockets of, of optimism there. It, it, it took a pandemic to be able to force us down the line of doing something with it. But uh, hopefully now we can use that as inspiration to do something more from. The Australian government is actually investing uh, $107 million 
uh, dollars, Australian dollars, to modernize uh, the healthcare system in Australia. Uh, a large part of that is supposed to be for technological advancements. So I wonder, you know, uh, since Australia is a large country and we already described some of the challenges with healthcare digitalization, can you put this uh, uh, sum so this amount of 107 million um, uh, Australian dollars into context for us, what can you actually get for such a large population? What are the expectations from the industry side or just the healthcare provider side? It's a good question, isn't it? And I, I think it's always never enough. It's it's going to be, <laughs> I think that it's promising to see that it's on the radar and that's that's sometimes all we can ask for sometimes. And the devil's going to be in the detail and the execution of it. There are a lot of commitments that get made that sometimes people get a bit, there's a bit of, it's kind of like, okay, that's good, but let's let's see what actually happens from all of that. We're, we're like in the midst of elections right about now. So a lot of promises do get made. So sometimes maybe I'm a bit jaded and older now that I, I feel that it's kind of like, well, we'll see. But I think in terms of what we really need in Australia is that, like like you mentioned, it's a, it's geographically, it's a very big country, but a lot of it in the middle, you can't really live in because it's too hot and like dusty and stuff. So the healthcare challenges that we've had and the requirement for telehealth is, has existed long before COVID and, and in rural and remote Australia, they were doing telehealth before it was cool. And cause it was, it was necessary for healthcare. There were some elements of Medicare, like, so some elements of healthcare were covered under Medicare when it comes to telehealth, but only for certain types like psychology services and other, and, you know, um, liaising with specialists, but with a GP in the room. So I don't think we need more technology per se around. I don't think we need more bits and pieces. I think we need more work on the current infrastructure and the interoperability of all of it to actually then do something meaningful with it. Our secure messaging in Australia. So the way we get results, so x-rays and, and pathology results into primary care our secure messaging capability is, I guess, like other parts of the world, quite archaic, I'm going to say, because it's based on different providers and it's really hard for a clinician to be able to set it all up so they can just get results, which is a really important thing. But don't even try to connect into hospitals and, you know, other parts of the healthcare system and, and more broadly, like aged care or disability, because as soon as patients start moving across outpatient and hospital and aged or disability, it's, it's like everything starts again, or they bring a little bucket of paper with them from one thing to another. So in terms, I don't think we need, need new apps or new super innovative technology to solve that problem. I think looking at what we've got and start making it all kind of connect together is going to be really important. So that's where I'd want to see some of that money go. And yeah, we need mm -hmm. more of it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to run out at some point. So, you know, um, one thing that I kind of keep wondering when it comes to technology is you need to keep updating the software. Subscriptions model, subscription models are a thing. New solutions are available yearly, basically, for the unsolved issues. So to to me, that almost sounds as if the costs for just, you know, the tech infrastructure and software is just going to blow up at some point. I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I, I've spoken with different health services and hospital groups around Australia, and it depends where you are. There are some that are really keen on 
partnering with vendors and building in solutions and implementing technology to work behind the scenes. So yeah, bringing in more technology, but from a from an end user's perspective, from a clinician's or a patient's point of view, it doesn't feel like there's more complexity. What technology can we implement to kind of do a lot of this work behind the scenes, whether it's AI to surface potential issues, bef- you know, before people need to look for it themselves or just being able to, to triage information or capture data. But I also know of a lot of health services here in Australia that are investing more and more to build their own apps and their own technology themselves. And I find that an interesting approach where there are hospital groups which are almost turning into mini technology companies, which as you know, and I know it's like being a health company is very different to being a technology company. And yes, you need, like if you're working in health technology, you need an understanding of the clinical space. But I always worry about hospital groups trying to build their own ecosystem. It, it doesn't really bode well for this concept of connecting in with the rest of the ecosystem. And also it's a very different vehicle to drive being a technology company compared to being a, um, a healthcare company. So, but that's, that's very much here in Australia. I don't know if we need to make this like more of a kind of, Hey, let's bounce off. And I'd love to know from your side about like what, if this is resonating in terms of other parts of the world that you've seen as well, is it a similar story elsewhere outside of Australia? Yeah, I think many, many things sound very similar. And by the way, you know, talking about similarities uh, among the visible digital health organizations in Australia is the Australian Institute of Digital Health, which is a fairly new organization. And because there's, it, it is, right? Uh, it was Heiser before it was, so there was a bit of a merger of the Health Informatics Society of Australia and then other groups. Then it became recently, yes, you're right, recently became the Australasian Institute of Digital Health. So yeah, that's in the last couple of years. And that's really then, I, I think they've expanded that it's a community and, and body that represents digital health in Australia and beyond. And more recently trying to expand a bit beyond more than just the health informatics side. Yeah. 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 yeah I guess uh, part of it goes also to wording. You know, it's different if you say uh, healthcare IT or if you say uh, digital mm. health. I think right. that this is just a random thing, but like information security doesn't sound interesting. But when you say cybersecurity, everybody's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's so right. That's so something I need to learn. Yeah. You know what, though? It's funny when you say cybersecurity, people feel like they don't know enough about it or it's too complex or it's kind of like when like you give your grandparents a or that, 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 that joke used to be funny before before COVID now grandparents know how to use FaceTime and everything so they, they know technology more than what we do but I think cybersecurity is something that, that concerns a lot of people but also there's not enough awareness and, and knowledge about it so that's that's something interesting in itself yeah so if we just would try to put it into one word it would be Passwords, strong passwords, right? <laughs> strong, but hyphenated word of strong passwords. Yes, that's right. That's, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's, that's a good start to start talking about uh, cybersecurity. So, yeah, the reason I mentioned the Australian Institute of Digital Health is because mm. um, Australia is currently in the middle of uh, election and the Institute proposed three key things to the federal government that they, the government should focus on one, the development of a fully funded national virtual care strategy. The second recommendation is to commit to build a digitally enabled healthcare workforce. So the awareness and the upskilling of the workforce is also important. And then the third recommendation is to invest in the infrastructure so we can actually have the 21st century healthcare system. And when I read this, it was like, okay, so this could actually be, you know, a recommendation (laughs) for any government. Most countries need a better infrastructure. Some countries are already building it. If we look at Europe, 
There's a few interesting use cases where, for example, the whole region of Catalonia in Spain went out with a strategy about how they want to organize their healthcare and basically their main requirement and the foundation for the whole thing is going to be the use of open standards. And we also see a lot of those initiatives also in the UK. Germany is doing similar things. So it's infrastructure. It's how are we going to make sure that the workforce knows what exactly they can expect from technology, how not to fear technology and telemedicine. Let's make it a a reality. I would expect that Australia would be an expert in telemedicine, you know, just because of the conditions there and the remote areas that you talked about earlier. We need to be, and this is something I bang on a lot about, is that this is, we've got that prime opportunity of really demonstrating globally the the benefits of of telemedicine well beyond COVID. We've got a lot of space between people who give care and receive care and also communities that are underrepresented and that need access to healthcare, but also need access to the technology to, to be able to do virtual care. So there's, you know, when I think of infrastructure, I think of a couple of things here in Australia, like there's the whole telecommunications infrastructure because our internet is rubbish. Like it is, it is absolutely <laughs> trash, right? And there's, I could talk, I could whinge for a lot about, about how poor the internet is on, on a scale. I forget where we are on the scale globally in terms of internet capability, but it's really low compared to other parts of the world. Then we've got the, you know, just generally the access to the tools to be able to do telehealth in the first place, whether it's for the aged and disability space or whether it's in rural and remote Australia, whether it's for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I think there's a lot more engagement we could be doing with these groups, communities, and people who may not have access to some of the basic tools that that they could then use to, to get quality healthcare access through telehealth. But then there's also, I think there's still a lot to do in terms of how the funding is done within in telehealth and what's covered, how to then go beyond just paying for the bit where the clinician and the patient speak to each other. But why don't we have, you know, a plan for asynchronous telehealth in some way, whether it's through chat being covered under Medicare? Why don't we have more to do with remote monitoring and tools to be able to monitor a patient's vitals and then somehow have funding for that? Because clinicians are doing it, patients are doing it now, and they're just wearing the cost and time because they see the benefits of it, but it's just not on the radar of the, the Medicare benefit scheme and and what's covered in terms of healthcare. So there's a lot of work to do there, I think. Yeah, I guess another thing that's common across the world, and that's the the complexity of billing that always uh, hinders the speed of adoption of new things. You actually had a an episode on your show with someone who did a PhD in, in billing yeah. for Medicare, right? Yeah. PhD in Medicare, Margaret, Far- like she'd be, she'd be stoked that you mentioned her. Cause I think anytime I think of Medicare now, I think of Margaret. So she's done well. I think when you, when you put your time and effort into doing a PhD into Medicare, you get to be, uh, be, be referenced there, but you know, you, you, you're right in the, I think the way she put it and, and she put it a lot more eloquent than me, but you know, Medicare, it's not we shouldn't throw the thing away. We shouldn't start again. We we should be very grateful for what we've got in terms of the, um, essentially our own universal healthcare system. A lot of people in Australia can be covered for things, but there's a lot of foundational things that need to be fixed. So yeah, that's, I think there's still some some work there. Yeah. uh, I love when you, when you, when you had her on the show, I loved how you, you know, started the whole discussion and you said you did a PhD in in billing. Can I ask why? 
yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good question, right? It's kind of, um, so yeah, but I think when you're a, was it, she was a nurse and a, and a lawyer and one of those people who are way too smart for, to, to be, um, spending time with me. So that's, uh, that was, that was a really good opportunity to speak with, with Margaret. But the, I, I always, when I ever, whenever I speak to guests in the U S for example, it still blows my mind in terms of the complexity and the structures and the cost involved in doing the costing. It's just ridiculous. Like it's just continuing to build this ongoing administrative burden. I assume that puts a lot of pressure on everyone in that kind of healthcare setting. Oh yeah, absolutely. But okay. So in May you hosted a summit about health tech. So this is something that goes under your show and it's uh, done for your community, which is a community of uh, healthcare stakeholders in Australia, uh, vendors. What seems to be on top of mind of of them at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at our autumn summit, so we do a, a quarterly virtual summit for our, our members and people who come along too. So it's great to be able to bring uh, a lot of people together there and their panel conversations. So it feels like a, a podcast on steroids because we've got all the different guests who've come on and community members and and bouncing ideas. It's not slides and everything. And I love those too at different events, but this is very much about bouncing around ideas and sharing thoughts. So a, a lot of the consistent themes that came out of the session that we had recently was around data that, that came up a lot in terms of using healthcare data effectively. And I really liked a session which was about the delivering on the promise of digital in healthcare. And so essentially getting to the crux of like, what's it for? So a lot of the times when we talk about healthcare data, people think about the commercial opportunities that exist around it, whether it's to de-identify it and sell it to pharma companies or whether it's to, you know, have some other kind of business need. Then you've got the the cohorts of people who look at it as a big opportunity to then build a lot of fancy algorithms and use artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning to be able to get some interesting insights out of it. And that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole. But I think in the end, if we're not interested in healthcare data for ultimately better patient outcomes, then I think we're all in it for the wrong reasons. I think that, you know, we're, if we can't use healthcare data effectively, what's captured to then be able to provide insights back to clinicians, decision makers, stakeholders to then try and reduce the amount of time that patients stay in a hospital so they can get out and, and live lives longer, that, that we can avoid people coming into hospital in the first place. So I think there was a lot of, at our summit, there was a lot of conversation around how do we get to the point where healthcare data can be used effectively to, in the end, do what we're, we're all here for, which is improve patients' lives. So that's an interesting thing. In the past, you were the manager um, of a company providing clinicians a clinical and practice management solution. So you, you really did a lot of uh, things that helped you understand healthcare a lot. So ap apart from uh, running this company, you, you also led a dermatology tech company. You were the director of the Medical Software Industry Association, which represents the interest of the medtech industry in Australia. I do wonder, you know, how has your view of healthcare and and health tech developed over time, changed over time, because, you know, now you're doing interviews, you're, you're, you do go a little bit broader from just vendors. So yeah. how, yeah, how, how's that changing? Yeah. It's an interesting question because, you know, I, before all of the health technology side of things, I worked in, I guess, call it the healthcare delivery side. So I was running contact centers that delivered healthcare services and I was running bricks and mortar clinics. So, yeah, and then had practice managers and medical directors reporting up through to me who were delivering healthcare in a, in a physical clinic. And so in all of those settings, whether it's in healthcare delivery, but also then creating technology for providers, 
Now I'm one of the board members for the Medical Software Industry Association, as you say, representing those those software vendors within the medical space in Australia. I'm also still a company director for, for MetaOptima too. So very much still involved in the, the creating technology for clinicians side of things. So my view has been pretty consistent all the way through is that because I'm someone who can always get, I always get excited and interested and fascinated by the shiny lights of technology of like, Hey, that'd be really cool. You know, like you can put glasses on and see things that fly around you, or you could do, Hey, something really clever with data and make it show a cool picture on the screen. But, um, in the end it comes down to, I always love bring it back to, okay. So then you've got your GP in, you know, suburban Adelaide here in Australia, who's seeing a patient and they need to be able to do something, but it's still really hard just to be able to access a previous report that they had from someone else. So how can we use technology to solve that actual problem then and make better health healthcare happen? So like when we on the podcast, we're talking about like make it happen and stuff, but it's all about the execution side. So it's, I'm very much a, okay, great. We've talked about it, but like, what can we do about it? And I love and going back to, I, I've never lost that focus on the clinician side of things. I'm not a clinician myself, but, you know, have worked very, I love working closely with doctors and nurses and and carers, allied health physicians, because that in the end, if you're not getting the feedback from them, from this, from technology, as it's been created, it's kind of pointless. Right. And I love hearing from those that do more kind of direct to consumer stuff as well. So patient view is also very important. And now more recently on the podcast too, like you say, we don't, we don't just speak to vendors. It's uh, you know, episodes with chief medical information officers in the public health system and members from the ADHA or AIDH or, you know, other groups that, that have an interest in it. And I think in the end, it all comes back to the need for all stakeholders to understand where they can partner together and solve problems. So, you know, if you're speaking to health informaticians, they talk about the need to engage with clinicians and co-design and build things together. So I'm really strong on that in terms of the need for all the different stakeholders within healthcare to, I guess, lean into each other a little bit more and understand each other's point of view and hopefully build solutions together. I love it when you see vendors or providers building solutions together in some way and partnering to, to do something bigger than what the two of them alone could have done. So I, I'm still very strong on the need for more of that. And even that's just in Australia. And I can't wait to see opportunity to do that across borders as well. That'd be, that'd be next level. Mm, where do digital health startups come to the picture in Australia? So how would you describe the startup scene, the opportunities, the investments, any interesting innovations that are perhaps uh, on your radar? Yeah. So in Australia, when I started, when I started the podcast, even this is a couple of years ago, 2018, 2019, it was a, it was pretty hard and there wasn't, wasn't a overly attractive scene to be in the startup digital health scene. And in those early episodes, a lot of the things that I would rant on about would be the need for more investment in the space to be able to encourage early stage organizations, whether it's get investment for research and development or whether it's for these companies to get early angel or seed rounds to, to, to start building their organizations. Cause there were, there wasn't really really the support and infrastructure to do that. Nowadays, we've got some great organizations that have been de developed out of different funds and stuff, which is things like AndHealth, then there's MTP Connect and MedTech Actuator and other kind of 
And then all these other acceler like cool accelerators and programs, which are all focused around healthcare and health tech. And some of them were pre-COVID, a lot more of them now are, are you know, post-COVID and looking at how they can support that health technology space. So right now it's a really exciting time to be involved in health technology, I think, in Australia. I was moderating an event over the weekend, which, uh, which is a super cool community, which is the Creative Careers in Medicine community here in Australia, which are clinicians who are looking at expanding from just, you know, they love the patient engagement side, but what else can they do within their career to, to broaden out within healthcare? And so digital is obviously a big space there. One thing that's come out of CCIM is a investing syndicate, which is called Medical Angels, which is like, uh, I, it's, I think, I think it's got hundreds or thousands or like a lot of doctors who, you know, have funds that they want to invest into health technology because they're in the end, they're the end users of it. But they don't want to be the ones selecting the right ones. And, you know, they may want to just put in $10,000 or something because that that's what they want to do. But then the, the syndicate will then invest in 10 different organizations that, that they've kind of selected as, you know, being part of the, the syndicate that they invest. And these are, you know, early stage digital health companies. So there's all these little pockets of things starting to pop up, which makes it a really exciting opportunity. And everywhere you look now, there are government run programs or grants or opportunities, which before, back in my day, uh, it makes me sound old, but the, you know, the, a couple of years ago, you had to really dig around and find them and, and discover these things right, right now. It's, it's a bit more apparent. So yeah, which is good. But how many of those, uh, you know, funding projects go beyond just being projects? Oh yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of research. So this is one thing too, is that when it comes to the research and development and building the project side and, and just demonstrating effectively more in the academic or, or university side of things, we, we do a lot of that really well, actually, in terms of whether it's in, in the lab, more in the biotech side, but also in the devices and, and, and to a point software. But one thing that's um, that we're not too great at still, I think in Australia, when you look at some of the statistics is we, we don't nurture that and then bring it, like you say, bring it to execution and go beyond that. What happens is a lot of this great talent that we bring up through our universities and schools and everything goes offshore and goes elsewhere because they'll be paid more or they'll be supported more. It's a more innovative environment, whether it's to work in the US or UK or like anywhere in the world or even, you know, emerging markets like India or even up in, in Israel. Like it's, it's all this exciting opportunity exists because here in Australia, I think it's partly because still there's so much more to do in terms of supporting like the execution side. Like I said, there are some great organizations doing this thing, but even, I think there could be even more support that's, that's given there. But also I think that the healthcare, you know, just generally the healthcare, it comes back to what's actually happening in healthcare. Cause there's still faxes going around. There's still bits of paper everywhere. And there's still things that just don't speak to it, which make it a really hard environment to actually then go from, this is a cool concept to this is happening in reality. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, uh, one thing that was kind of surprising uh, during the COVID pandemic was the whole situation with the supply chain of vaccines to Australia. Uh, I mean, we mm. were vaccinated in Europe and you were in your fifth lockdown and still waiting for the <laughs> vaccine. And I just couldn't understand why that was. And so maybe you can add a little bit of a comment uh, on that. And this just made me wonder to which extent does the remoteness of Australia also impact the interest of investors from other countries or from Asia to, to invest? Does it have an impact or no, not really? That's an interesting point. I don't 
know whether I've got a super intelligent answer to the point of us not having vaccines for a long period of time. There's probably a political answer, but I'm I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. That's usually how that answer gets done is, is a political answer. However, the, the question around the appetite or interest in investing in healthcare and technology in Australia is an interesting one because it's, I think you kind of alluded to it at the start too. We've got a good size population, close to 25 million people, overall a good healthcare system. We represent a lot of people, like as a multicultural community, there's different health types represented, but it's kind of representative of what's happening elsewhere in the world too. We've got the same problems of uh, increasing burden of chronic disease aging population. So the environment is pretty good to be able to demonstrate the effectiveness of, of a solution. I think that the challenge that we've got here in Australia, and it goes both ways, is that if you're an Australian health tech company, you could probably get investment early on as to you know demonstrate the idea, but there's only so many people to receive healthcare or hospitals or clinics that would actually purchase the solution. So it doesn't take long before you go, well, where else do we look outside of Australia and, and, and I guess in New Zealand as well, where else do we look to go? And then sometimes I think organizations from out, like around the world might look at Australia and say, hey, let's, let's demonstrate it in Australia first as kind of like the, the, the test place and then scale the solution out to, to other parts of the world, which is a good concept. However, as you probably know as well, even though some healthcare systems can look similar, actually, when you get into the detail and scratch the surface just a little bit, you find out how different they are. So then what ends up happening is you demonstrate the effectiveness of a solution in the Australian market, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be accepted and supported elsewhere in the world too. So it's an exciting place to, I think there is a lot of merit in that point around demonstrating a solution in Australia because we've got a control, we've got a lot of water around us so you can keep us little like contained here and that's our solution there and give it a go. There's, there is this time right now of an interest in supporting the solutions. And, and I know in Australia, a lot of vendors are always interested in partnering with organizations from outside of our borders because it brings a lot of potential future opportunities as well. Yeah, so I you did, I guess, a great introduction into the question of how do providers and vendors from countries outside Australia enter the Australian market. You know, there's several things that make Australia appealing. It's still um, a part of the Commonwealth countries, so mm -hmm. it's English. That's also very important for, you know, software development and the way uh, you can expect the users to use your uh, solution. So what do you see? Do you Are you observing any challenges that vendors from outside are faced with when they try to enter Australia? Or how would you advise them to go around that? I would definitely advise on, um, I think it's everything you've said is correct in terms of the opportunity that exists. I would recommend on partnering with existing solutions that are here in the country and immersing yourself in the the area. I guess that's pretty good advice wherever you wherever you go. But I just think of examples where there's been organizations that had some, like from outside of Australia, that had a good amount of funding that kind of just all of a sudden appeared. I assume with the intention of taking over the, the ecosystem somehow with their practice management system or with their EMR and be like, hey, we're here now. And look, we did it in the US and UK or wherever they were. We'll do it in Australia as well. But you got like healthcare. It's a funny thing. You got to get the buy-in from the clinicians, got to get the buy-in from the the if you're in outpatients in the, in the primary health networks and all of the, the, the public infrastructure around it, all of the industry bodies. So 
without that partnership and the trust and the, and the credibility of your capability to do it in Australia, I think that you would struggle. There are some great industry bodies now, like the Medical Software Industry Association, like I'm a part of, but also, as you mentioned, the Australasian Institute of Digital Health, a great way to get across what's happening in this space. Cheap plug for the Talking Health Tech podcast and community as well, where you can see across what's going on and within this industry, because we've got a good community of, of uh, organizations and people who are keen to partner with organizations from outside as well. So I would recommend starting those conversations and, and finding little opportunities, the usual thing. It's uh, like demonstrate in a small way, whether it's a pilot or whether it's a utilizing an element of a solution. Sometimes you don't have to be the entire thing comes in. It could just be this aspect of what we do could be useful in Australia to solve for a problem. But I think that po that last point too is really important as well, which is not just bringing technology to another country because it's a good place to do it, but it would solve for a problem that we have. The big problems that we have in Australia are, like we mentioned before, around the accessibility side of just due to the rural and remote nature of the country, but also all of this interoperability issues that, that many healthcare institutions face around the world too. Mm. It's, it's kind of fascinating how much impact do communication and culture have when it comes to adoption of solutions, you always need the buy-in of the end users. And in healthcare, that can be really difficult. So I sometimes wonder if, you know, to which extent is it impossible basically to break that barrier where somebody would feel that you're, you're just trying to sell them something. And at the same time, sometimes there's this impression that there's a large market potential in a specific area of the world and you you really have to do a lot of research to understand the market that you that you want to enter i think that especially you know for for countries like africa there's this general assumption that nothing's happening there so you know you should you could give so many solutions away but in fact, mm. there's a lot of innovation happening. There's a lot of smart people there. There's also other reasons why the continent is perhaps not as interesting for investors. And that's because just the buying power is uh, so much lower there. But at the same time, there's some challenges that are the same as they were or they are in other uh, countries across the world, other continents across the world. And that is that, you know, people will just feel that they can build their own software. So solutions are popping up. It's not like that just because the, the markets are less developed, uh, that they would take a smarter approach to the whole development. Um, so, yeah, I think that's quite an interesting thing to think about also, regardless yeah. of if you're trying to go from Australia outside or the other way around. Yeah. And I think as well, like for, for us in Australia, when we think about what, what we didn't touch on then was regulation or, you know, it getting things certified, whether it's devices or whether it's, you know, solutions. For us in Australia, you often go for FDA first because then it, then you get TGA approval kind of off the back of FDA. So if you're FDA approved, then chances are it's just some paperwork to be able to then be uh, TGA approved, which is Therapeutic Goods Australia certified. So, uh, but then we've got, if it's a uh, a medical device in Australia, we've got a lot of talk going on at the moment within the industry around regulation of software as a medical device, which I know globally is always an interesting conversation too, where more and more devices that build in AI and, and I guess diagnostic claims and, and other bits and pieces, or even, sorry, software that actually has AI that, that has a diagnostic claim, there's a lot more regulation required around it too. So I think partnering with the industry bodies and the people that, that deliver it, I don't think that 
going in with the approach of, hey, there's this big lucrative market and you'll be able to make lots of money coming into Australia really quickly is the right approach because it's just not the right size of market to do that. But it's a great location to be able to demonstrate the effectiveness of a solution and then also then leverage off the back of that into other parts of the world too. So that I think going in with the right approach and trying to understand the problem to be solved, then you'd be, we're generally pretty friendly people. So, <laughs> so it should you? be good. Are you sure? <laughs> well, <laughs> I am, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, you actually made me think about how uh, things related to interoperability work uh, across uh, the world in other countries. And one example really stands out for me. So I work in the medication management space for hospitals. And when mm. we talk about medications and how the information about the medications that the patient is taking is following that patient, it's a huge and complex story. So, for example, in the hospital, you would have dispensing cabinets on the wards. You would have a pharmacy system in the pharmacy and then you have the prescribing and medication management and administration system so a lot of different IT systems then you have the GP system you know on on the primary care level and these systems mm -hmm. really need to talk to each other and in order uh, for you to enable them uh, to talk to each other you have to make integrations and integrations for companies are just a thing of priorities so they're possible mm -hmm. nobody's going to deny that but they just don't get done because uh, different companies have different priorities and in that sense I think the work that the NHS is doing for mm. the medicines interoperability and shareability is really admirable because they're setting standards they're mandating standards and they're also talking to, to vendors about their problems they're talking to healthcare providers to understand their problems and to really design rules that are applicable and useful to all so you know, they're already working on the electronic prescribing service which is the the backbone just for the medicines data and uh, this is you know just the medicines data is a, a very small part of healthcare but it's a really really hugely important part uh, in healthcare Last year, I did a, a documentary about um, medication errors and deaths, deaths related to that and just kind of was exploring what the reasons behind that were. And for example, uh, with the opioid crisis in uh, the U.S., because there's very low traceability of where the, the patient is getting medications from, it could easily happen that, for example, if a patient came into an emergency room the doctors or the clinicians that would receive that patient wouldn't really know like if that patient was already at other emergency uh, services that day. Yeah. So that's just something that illustrates very well why interoperability of even smaller parts of healthcare are so important when we're talking about how can we better exchange information to provide better care. Yeah. Mm. And I think it comes down to the detail too, because our journey with e-prescribing is, is still ongoing because for quite a while we had kind of elements of e-prescribing where a script could be sent to a pharmacy after a, a, a physician had prescribed it, but then they still had to physically send the bit of paper because that was the requirement. So you still needed the, like all these funny rules around, you still need the piece of paper. And only recently we kind of just, again, driven by COVID because like it just wasn't physically possible to be able to have bits of paper being posted out, but it was done for quite a while. Like, you know, you were posting them out afterwards to the pharmacy so they could hold on to the really funny things you do just because that's how the system is designed. So I think as when we can start thinking more about what it actually looks like 
at a practical level and having the engagement directly with the clinicians and the pharmacists and all the different stakeholders who are involved, I think in any healthcare institution, we can, we can actually make some headway. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny when you mentioned paper uh, in combination to digitization. We so Slovenia actually has quite a good digitized system, and we've had e-prescriptions for a very long time now. They we take them for for granted. E-referrals are usually described as the less good solutions. And I still remember one time when uh, I was referred by my doctor to just some specialist. And when I got there, they asked me if I have the the paper slip Mm. of the electronic (laughs) referral. And I was like... How? I didn't get one. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> I could print it out. Is that like, <laughs> what, what have we done if I have to print some sort of a, a confirmation yeah. note that I actually have that referral? So yeah, we'll see what, what, what happens. In Europe, by the way, uh, by 2025, 20, we've got this whole idea about the European health data space. So the 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 hope is that by uh, in three years, yeah, 25 EU countries should offer at least two electronic uh, cross-border health services to uh, patients, so patient summaries and e-prescriptions mm. and e-dispension. So basically, if, mm. you know, if I'm from Slovenia and I travel to Spain, I can go to the pharmacy there to uh, just uh, pick up my uh, chronic disease management drugs, for example. So that's the hope. Yeah. But we'll yeah. see, we'll see how far we go. In the end, you know, it's all about standards and how can we go beyond PDFs? That's like... Beyond PDFs. I still... It just reminded me of the story when I first registered for my health record. I still remember that... Um, I'm, I, I assume it's not the case anymore. I hope it's not the case, but you got a verification code and then the notification I got was, we've posted out your verification code for you. So as I was setting up the My Health Record, then they posted out a six-digit code in an envelope to me that I waited a week for to then open up the envelope and then say, okay, I'm going to punch this code into it. It's like, okay, we've got a bit of room to go here. But I guess I think we've improved since then. But uh, yeah, it's it's still a lot of work to do. Yeah. You know, it's like so funny that one of the really, really useful things in healthcare are messages. So SMS, yep. reminding Absolutely. patients that they need to go to their appointment tomorrow so you, you don't have no-shows. And yep. in many cases, we've got these little things that address um, huge problems. I think using existing infrastructure, like using the, the infrastructure that's most accessible to people is is the best way, not trying to overcomplicate it and, and just thinking... Like meeting people where they are. I think in generally in healthcare, if we can do more of that, that's really effective. But I'd love to get your thought as well, just but before we close out, some of it would be from the other way around. You know, we talked a bit about engaging more with the Australian health tech industry for organisations from outside of Australia wanting to to participate here. What about the other way? If there was uh, more Australian organisations looking to go global, they've demonstrated some effectiveness within their local setting. What what advice could you give? Uh, are there different countries or regions that are more... Um, likely to be receptive of someone coming in and participating in the healthcare system or what have you seen work effectively? Um, the same as you mentioned. So it's it, the culture is always different. So the best way to go with the solution is to find a local partner that's going mm. to then either work as a partner, either work as a reseller, just because, yeah, you might make the wrong assumptions, have the wrong approach, might not understand what's appropriate in the business sense, what's the yeah. what attitude you should have. Yeah, so just shortly, that's it. 
Makes sense. Absolutely. I think that's uh that's all. It's a pretty good well-rounded conversation, yeah. Yeah. I think that's okay. We can wrap up. Cool. Yeah. How do we wrap up this like who who's it's hard when you don't know who's like I, I I've got my normal wrap up thing, but then you've Let's also got start like with wishes. Let's wrap up with wishes. Wishes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Like if so what do we wish? If there's one thing that you could make happen in healthcare in the next 5 years, what would it be? Um in a, I'm going to be selfish and say in Australia to have like a proper interoperable secure messaging system so that a clinician or a patient or a provider could send healthcare data securely on any platform without being subscribed to any particular app or solution, you know, and not being contingent on X, Y, and Z, just easy communication of healthcare information across different providers. I, my wish, I thought about it a little bit, is not oh. digital at all. Um, and it's, I wish that we could reduce the, the workforce shortage in healthcare because it causes just so many challenges in terms of access to healthcare. And in the end, it doesn't matter if you have a universal healthcare system, if there's no providers that you can visit or if the waiting time is too long. So, you know, in Europe, we, we like to pride ourselves in access to healthcare and our public systems, but then it's like horrifying to see the waiting times for certain procedures. And for example, here in, in Slovenia, our system is based on primary care and, you know, primary care physicians being the gatekeepers uh, for secondary care, which is more expensive. And... The problem is that politics um, and ministries of health haven't been able to make primary care work attractive enough in the last 10 years that we ended up in, in a huge shortage of GPs. And I think mm. it's just like in the capital, there's 14,000 people that just don't have a primary care doctor and they can get one because there's just not enough doctors. And uh, even though, you know, the problem here is that the solution isn't to pu put out more spots for medical students to enroll into a GP specialty. That doesn't work. I mean, the spots don't get filled. You have to change the working conditions and make the whole job more attractive if we want to change that. So that that's just, I guess, food for thought when we're thinking about how we can improve the working condition, conditions and the appeal of medicine and healthcare. Yeah, mm. maybe sometimes we just shouldn't think so much about technology, but also many other things like people getting adequate amount of sleep and not having to work seven night shifts per month just because there's a workforce yeah. shortage. Absolutely. Your answer is heaps better than mine. My, mine was off the cuff, very focused on the tactical technology side. You're absolutely right. If there was one thing to address, I would be very much focused on the, the people. And, and I, I love your point around the answer isn't just opening up more spaces or reducing the bar, like the level of requirement of, of clinicians and compromising on safety. It's, it's investing in the people and, and building the right culture and infrastructure to be able to allow healthcare provider, the people who are doing the caring to, to be cared for effectively themselves. So bang on. And with that thought, we're going to wrap up and reflect on these very important points. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. 
Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Thank you.